welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the second Sunday of Advent, December 4th, 2022. A mysterious figure in his own right, and yet one of the most important, we spend our episode today exploring the persona of John the Baptist. With some sleuthing, we find that the prophet's diet and wardrobe have much to tell us about this desert-dwelling man. Not only that, but the location of his work, the Jordan River, speaks volumes about the Baptist mission once one takes into account the other significant events that occurred at the same site. We'll also take a brief peek into the Jewish background of baptism and attempt to link John's baptism with one particular kind of water washing. Welcome back to Sunday Dive. It's good to be with you all. We are in the second Sunday of Advent today, exploring more of Matthew's gospel. We find ourselves today in Matthew chapter 3, and we'll be exploring verses 1 through 12. Um, There's a lot in our gospel today. Um, We'll be exploring John the Baptist for the next couple of weeks, and uh, we get a good introduction to him today. So without further ado, let's go ahead and read our gospel reading together so we could dive right into it. We're at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and as usual, I'll be reading from the Revised Standard Version. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, and a leather girdle around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That was Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Again, a nice introduction to John the Baptist, who is uh, highly misunderstood, but a quite fascinating, fascinating person for us. Let's dive right into it. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is John the Baptist preaching repentance? We can ask ourselves. And Matthew, in a sense, gives us the answer right off the bat, kind of like a, well, duh, answer. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. In other words, he is the one spoken of, as Matthew tells us, by the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Okay, so John is preaching in the wilderness and he's preaching repentance. Why? Because he is he is the person he is meant to. He was he was born in order to prepare the way of the Lord to make his paths straight. Okay. And and the way that John the Baptist is going to do that is by making a path in the hearts of the people that he encounters, right? 
there's a sense in which we experience this reading and we we put ourselves perhaps way back in the time of Isaiah and think of, you know, a, a road crew going out into the Judean desert and, and preparing a highway for the Lord, right? John is indeed doing that, but he's doing that on a spiritual level. He's preparing a highway in the hearts of those that our Lord will encounter, okay? And he does so by preaching repentance. Repentance, why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew is going to go on and give us further evidence, okay, from the Old Testament. And it's subtle, but it's 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 also really obvious. And this is one of my favorite things to break open about John the Baptist. So first of all, Matthew gives us the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And he's saying, John the Baptist is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. But, but then Matthew launches into this, this um, very detailed description of John the Baptist's um, wardrobe and John the Baptist's diet. And as I say many times, whenever there are lots of details in scripture, we got to pay attention. So what is going on here? Again, Matthew is offering this as further evidence for who John the Baptist is. So we're told at verse four, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. All right, what is going on here? Is there anybody else in the Old Testament we can ask ourselves, well, in scripture, I suppose we could say, who wears a, a garment of, of hair? And indeed, we find such a person in the Old Testament. So if you flip back in your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we get a dialogue between the king and some messengers. And this, this is how it goes. The messengers say to the king, there came a man to meet us. And the king says, what kind of man was he who came to meet you? And the messengers say he wore a, a garment of hair cloth with a girdle of leather about his loins. And the king says, it is Elijah the Tishbite. It is Elijah the Tishbite. Okay, so when Matthew gives us this detailed description of John's garment, of his wardrobe, a garment of camel's hair, hair and a leather girdle around his waist, if you're a first century Jew, you immediately think of Elijah. You know that's what Elijah wore, okay? So Matthew's offering this as further evidence for who John the Baptist is and why he is preaching repentance in the wilderness. All right, so we've made the connection between his wardrobe and the prophet Elijah. Can we draw this connection any further? Indeed, we can. If we were to go to the last prophet in the Old Testament, the prophet who Jews believed was, was the last prophet, okay? So I don't just mean like the last prophetic book in the Bible, but I, I mean more specifically, the one who the Jewish people, at least in the first century, kind of understood to be the last of the prophets. If we go back to him, which is Malachi, chapter four, verse five, we read this, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Okay, what does this imply? This implies that before the Messiah comes, before the Lord comes to save his people, God is going to send ahead of him Elijah the prophet. Now you're a first century Jew and you hear about this man who's a prophet out in the wilderness and he's wearing a garment of hair cloth and a girdle of leather which makes him look an awful lot like Elijah, what's going through your head? What's going through your head is, is this, Malachi 4, 5. 
that Elijah has come and therefore the great and the terrible day when the Lord will arrive is, is on its way. It's, it's soon to be here. So uh, Matthew, again, painting this fantastical picture for us of who John the Baptist is, um, obviously and yet subtly at the same time. Let's, let's dive into John the Baptist's diet. And this is a little, um, I was going to say convoluted. It's not really convoluted. It's a little bit more involved, but you'll enjoy this. You'll enjoy this. I'm going to bring in one of my professors, Dr. John Bergsma, to help flesh this out for us. So why is, why is John the Baptist eating what he's eating? Matthew tells us locusts and wild honey. Well, first of all, we can ask ourselves, why does Matthew go through the effort of telling us this? But then we can ask ourselves, why is he eating locusts and wild honey? And for this, we have to turn to um, uh, some some first century context, okay? Um, the first century context that we have to turn to to help explain what might be going on here is the first century context of a particular sect of Judaism known as the Essenes, okay? So you might be familiar, in fact, John the Baptist, or uh, Matthew, I should say, rather, um, in our gospel notes, a couple of the sects of Judaism. He notes the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay. We hear about them all the time in the gospels. There's also the zealots. And then a fourth subset of Judaism that is never explicitly mentioned in the new Testament, but it appears if you know the signs of it is the sect of Judaism called the Essenes. Okay. The Essenes. Now, who were the Essenes? couple things about the Essenes. Um, they were a pseudo-monastic community that is believed uh, were founded by the former high priest, okay? Um, high priesthood was supposed to be for life. The high priesthood became politicized in the centuries before Christ. And um, therefore, in its politicization, the true high priest was driven out of Jerusalem and the priesthood was usurped. The high priesthood was usurped, okay? So the thought is that the high priest who was kicked out of high priesthood and kicked out of the Jerusalem temple went straight east out of Jerusalem into the desert where it was believed that the Messiah was going to come straight uh, from the east um, through the desert. And he established a pseudo-monastic community that was um, uh, full of men who were celibate, who were ascetics, they practiced asceticism, and who uh, were uh, prophets, who practiced prophecy. Okay, now those, those three things start to sound familiar at all uh, regard, regarding the figure that we're exploring. Indeed, they do, right? They start to sound um, awfully similar to John the Baptist, okay? Now, let's bring in doc, Dr. Bergsma here. This is from his book, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is excellent, fascinating. Okay, Dr. Bergsma is an expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I should note here very quickly um, that you might not have heard of the Essenes, but you've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essenes produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? So in his book on the Dead Sea Scrolls, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Dr. John Bergsma says this, apparently the oaths of membership to the covenant community of Qumran included a commitment never again to partake of food prepared outside the community. But a loophole to this vow was edible aspects of the environment that weren't prepared by anyone and perhaps didn't qualify as food according to their oath. 
Okay. So um, the, these, these monks, these Jewish monks living together in community and Qumran practiced celibacy, practiced prophecy, practiced asceticism, and they also took this commitment to not partake of food prepared outside the community. Now, you might be asking, asking yourself at this point, what the heck does this have anything to do with John the Baptist? Well, there's some good arguments for John the Baptist having been a member of the Qumran community. Indeed, even for having been brought up in the Qumran community, okay? So for example, at Luke chapter one, verse 80, we read John the Baptist was in the wilderness till the day of his manifestation. Now, this is a funny thing to say and gives us kind of a funny image of John the Baptist being sent out into the, the, the jungle, if you will, the, the wilderness as a young boy and just kind of surviving on his own in the wilderness until he starts his ministry, his prophetic ministry. First of all, we, we want to understand that anytime you hear the word wilderness in the scriptures, it's a reference to the desert, okay? And that the Qumran community in the desert, the pseudo-monastic community, not only, um, you know, lived in community, practiced asceticism, practiced celibacy, practiced prophecy, but it's also understood that they had essentially a boarding school, okay? Josephus tells us this, first century um, Jewish historian, tells us that they they um, ran essentially a boarding school where they would take uh, children that were not their own and raise them up, giving, a theolo- giving them a theological education. And this would have likely been like a prestigious education, okay? This makes a lot of sense when we understand um, John the Baptist's upbringing, right? He was born of elderly parents who were of a priestly pedigree who, for one, probably couldn't raise him because of age, because of their their advanced age, but also may have um, may have died in uh, at a, 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 a I was going to say at a young age, but they would not have died at a young age, right? John the Baptist may have lost his parents at a young age. Better way of saying that, due to their advancement in age when he was born. And because of the priestly pedigree, it would not have been surprising for Zechariah to want John the Baptist to be brought up in a a good theological education by good priests, okay? And Qumran would qualify as one of these places. And so it would make sense. Luke chapter one, verse 80, he was in the wilderness to the day of his manifestation. Makes sense, all right? in this context. And Dr. John Bergsma and other prominent scholars hold this view that John the Baptist was sent to Qumran to study, decided um, when he came of age to stay at Qumran and to actually join the covenant community. And therefore, as a member of the covenant community would have taken this commitment to never again partake of food prepared outside of the community. Now, what does it mean when we see John the Baptist employing this quote unquote loophole by eating edible aspects of the environment, which is what Dr. John Bergsma surmises when we see Matthew describing John the Baptist as eating locusts and wild honey. These are these edible aspects of the environment that weren't prepared by anyone and perhaps didn't qualify as food according to the oaths of the Qumran community. Why would John the Baptist have to be eating these edible aspects of the environment? Well, the assumption would be that John the Baptist 
either left the Qumran community or was expelled from the Qumran community, okay? And why might this be? Why might he have been uh, expelled from the Qumran community? Might, why might he have um, left or been expelled from the Qumran community? I'll let Dr. John Bergsmo speak for himself here. Again, this is a quote from um, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, this is uh, pages 40 through 41. This is Dr. John Bergsma speaking. John the Baptist received some or all of his education from the Essenes at Qumran, either being sent to them by his parents at a young age or else joining them voluntarily when he was older. He got the characteristic features of his theology from them. However, John also studied the prophet Isaiah, who was greatly honored by the Qumran community. And through this study, he eventually found himself at odds with the community that had formed him. For the prophet Isaiah clearly prophesied a coming salvation for all nations. In other words, all the Gentiles. But when John pointed out this and similar passages of Isaiah to the superiors of the Qumran community, they wanted nothing to do with it. But John was insistent that God's message of salvation should go out to all the people, not just an elite among Israel. And the argument led to his expulsion from the community. Okay, again, that's Dr. John Bergsma in his book, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is Dr. Bergsma's point of view, again, a view held by other prominent biblical scholars, that we find John the Baptist out in the wilderness preaching repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand because he is him who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, as Matthew quotes, because he is him who is Elijah to come, who is going to usher in the coming of the Lord because he believed in the prophecies in Isaiah that said the promises were not just for the Jewish people, but were for all people, for all nations, for all Gentiles. Friends, I've said this before in the podcast. I'll say it again. This is exciting for you and I because the vast majority of us who find ourselves in the new covenant are not Jews. And, and we have to thank um, obviously our Lord, right? For including us in this new covenant community. But we have to thank even in some ways, John the Baptist for paving the way for that. And he, he understood Isaiah. He understood the Old Testament. He understood the promises. He understood this idea that Israel indeed was chosen to be a, a, a chosen people, but for the sake of others. And you and I are those others. And so we see John the Baptist going out into the desert preaching repentance, and he's not just preaching to Jews. We're going to see him here in our gospel have, have specific strong language for the Jewish people. But elsewhere in the scriptures, we see John the Baptist um, offering um, preaching to tax collectors, offering preaching to Roman soldiers, okay? So quite literally, all the nations. And where John the Baptist finds himself he, he sets up camp, if you will, in a, in a crossroads where people are, are coming, are, are fording the Jordan River in order to go into the promised land and out of the promised land, into Palestine and out of Palestine. And so he sets up shop, if you will, in an, in an area where many people coming and going and not just Jews. And he does this on purpose. Why? Because it's his job to prepare the way of the Lord and not just in the hearts of the Jewish people, but in the hearts of all men, all men. And so we can invoke the intercession of St. John the Baptist during this Advent season to help us to, to beg for the graces for us 
to, to have a way prepared in our hearts for Jesus Christ, because we are of the nations, we are of the Gentiles. And praise God that the covenant has been opened even to us. All right, so um, we have John, this, this fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah, this new Elijah, and we see that in his wardrobe, this one who is committed to the prophecies in Isaiah, even at the loss of his own monastic community, okay? And we see him in verse five, going out uh, or receiving, I should say, all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all the region about the Jordan. And those who are coming to him are baptized by him in the river Jordan, and they confess their sins. Let's explore the location in which we find ourselves here. Again, because nothing is by accident in the scriptures. The Jordan River is a significant site. Several significant things happen at, uh, at the Jordan River. So for one, we find at the Jordan River, Naaman is cleansed there at 2 Kings 5 verses 1 through 14. Why is this significant? Was Naaman a Jew? No, Naaman was a Gentile, okay? And so again, we get this precursor, if you will, of not just Jews coming and finding newness in the rivers of, of the Jordan, but even Gentiles coming and finding newness in, in the waters of the river Jordan. What else happened of significance at the Jordan River? Elijah was taken to heaven there. We read about this at 2 Kings 2 verses 1 through 11. So, so not only is John wearing the wardrobe of Elijah and preaching things to prepare the way as Elijah was, was meant to, the new Elijah was meant to, but the last time we saw Elijah in scripture, he's at the Jordan River, okay? So John plants himself in the same location in which we found Elijah. What else happened at the Jordan River of significance? Israel passed through the Jordan River in order to enter the promised land, okay? When we think about the, the Israelite people um, passing through water, we often think of the Red Sea, but what we don't often recall is that they had to make another water crossing in order to actually enter into the promised land, and that was the water crossing of the Jordan River. So anytime John calls um, the Jews into the Jordan River, there's, there's deeper meaning there. He's calling them to a, a kind of re-entry into the promised land, um, a, a, a renewed sort of exodus into the land that is to come, all right? Interestingly enough, we also hear that, um, that, that um, God, this is not specific to the Jordan River, but still uh, applicable to our discussion here. At Hosea, Chapter two, verse 14, we read this, uh, this intimate language. God speaking through the prophet, therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Okay, so, so there will come a day spoken of by the prophet uh, Hosea when God will once more renew his, his covenant with the people. He will woo Israel back to himself. And where will he do that? He will do that in the wilderness. Okay. And again, the wilderness, anytime in scripture, we have it refers specifically to the desert. All right. So, so the people are, by, by, by setting up camp at the Jordan river and calling the people, Jews and Gentiles alike to come to the waters of the Jordan, John is evoking all of this imagery, which is tremendously amazing. So they come to him at the Jordan 
and we're told that they are baptized by him in the Jordan and that they confess their sins. So we can ask ourselves, what sort of baptism is going on here? I mean, one one general question is is just like, was baptism practiced in Jewish culture? Because baptism is so associated with Christianity that we can assume that John the Baptist was like the first person to baptize. In fact, when his name is John the Baptist, you know, you kind of wonder if the guy invented the thing. But baptism, in fact, was practiced in Jewish culture. So let's bring some of that in to try to flesh out what's going on here. So in Greek, the term uh, translated baptism as baptizo, and it simply means washing, okay? So Jews practice baptizo, they practice washing, they practice baptism on a ritual basis for the sake of ritual purification, for ritual cleanliness. So for example, remember back in the scriptures when Jesus heals the man at the pool of Siloam, okay? The pool of Siloam is a large pool right inside the gates of Jerusalem that was built there in order to allow for pilgrims who were entering Jerusalem and who were going up into the temple area to perform the ritual purification required before they were allowed to enter the temple, okay? So again, before a Jew was allowed to enter the temple, they had to perform a ritual washing for ritual purification. And there were have been so many Jews coming into Jerusalem in order to enter the temple that they built large pools in Jerusalem in order to accommodate this, okay? So again, baptizo, washing, this was very much practiced in Jewish culture. The community at Qumran, also revered washing. They would wash multiple times a day. And for them, there was a sense in which the washing shouldn't just be ritualistic. It shouldn't just be something like a motion that has to be uh, gone through. Rather, it should also be accompanied by a change of heart. It should have uh, fruits, if you will, to, to borrow the language of John the Baptist. It should have fruits to, to show for it, okay? But again, John the Baptist would have practiced um, in the Qumran community, he would have practiced ritual washing multiple times a day. There's another kind of washing that's not as um, well known, but it's very fascinating, practiced in um, Jewish culture. And that was what was called proselyte washing or proselyte baptism. And this was one of the things that had to occur in order to signal conversion. So if you were a Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism, you had to be, quote unquote, baptized. You had to be washed. Here I want to bring in one of my favorite biblical scholars that I quote often, Craig Keener. He says this, this is a direct quote from his commentary on Matthew's gospel. Quote, John's call is more radical. His repentance refers not to a regular turning from sin after a specific act, but to a once for all repentance, the kind of turning from an old way of life to a new that Judaism associated with Gentiles converting to Judaism. I'll say that last part again. This was a repentance that was once for all, a kind of turning from an old way of life that was associated with Gentiles converting to Judaism. Okay? So what is the what is the implication here? If what if this is the kind of washing that is most congruent with the washing, the baptism that John the Baptist is conducting. And he's doing it not just for Gentiles. He's certainly doing it for Gentiles, but he is also doing it for Jews. What does this imply, right? If he's washing Jews with a sort of proselyte washing 
a conversion to Judaism. What is he saying? He's saying as in a way like the ground has been leveled in some ways to prepare the way for the Lord, Jew and Gentile must be treated the same. So it's not just the Gentile that must be, that must repent and be washed. It's the Jew also that must repent and be washed. Okay. Um, Craig Keener goes on to say that John warns his hearers against depending on the special privileges of their heritage. John warns his hearers against depending on the special privileges of their heritage. So it's not enough to just say, I'm a Jew. I have a right to divine privilege. I have a right to divine grace. I have a right to be saved by God, to be saved by the Messiah. No. It's as if John is saying, by kind of leveling the playing field and by even washing Jews with a proselyte baptism, he's saying you have to actually, you have to actually pursue this in a way. You have to actually sort of choose this. You can't just rely on your heritage. You must have a change of heart for this to come about, okay? Let's continue on. Uh, John is gonna turn to the Pharisees and Sadducees and speak to them. He says, he, it says uh, in Matthew 7, uh, Matthew uh, verse 7, where, we're, where we are, we're at uh, Matthew 3, chapter 3, verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he, John the Baptist, said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Strong language, strong language, but John the Baptist has a reputation for being a man of strong language. Again, I'll draw on Craig Keener here. He says this, calling his hearers vipers may have been an insult, but calling them offspring of vipers accused them of killing their own mothers, indicating the utmost moral depravity. Whoa, okay. What's going on here? Well, there was a belief in first century uh, culture that um, uh, the offspring of vipers, in order to like be born, actually ate their way outside of their mother. That was the that was the point of view at this this period of, of history. Again, that for for a viper, a baby viper, to be birthed, it actually ate its way out of its mother, and so like destroyed its mother in the process, which is a really gross image and kind of heinous thing. Which is, is exactly why Craig Keener says to to call them that is to associate them with with utter moral depravity. And, and they they appear to be deeply insulted by this idea as, as we see the future interactions that take place between Pharisees and Sadducees and John the Baptist and then Pharisees and Sadducees and our Lord, okay? You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. This is an interesting sort of image. Again, John the Baptist is bringing in all these sorts of images. When do we see snakes fleeing? You might see um, uh, in, in the first century, you might see snakes fleeing from a fire um, in a field because the stubble was often set fire to prepare the fields for, for um, planting. 
Or for example, when um, trees might be harvested in a forest, you might see tree snakes fleeing. We get some of this actually here in Iowa where I live because when the, the farmers go through and they harvest, it upsets the insects and animals that have um, kind of made their home in the fields, right? And so you might actually see snakes fleeing the fields. Um, it's 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 not uncommon, for example, to um, to be spreading hay from a hay bale and find snakes that have been uh, that have been uh, maimed in the process of the machinery going through and harvesting the hay. And you can imagine that they probably were not just laying there, um, allowing themselves to be taken up into the machinery, but rather they were probably fleeing the machinery as it was coming. And so John the Baptist, he's a master of intense imagery. And he he offers us this image of, of the, the viper. And not only that, but the viper who is, who is the offspring, right? Um, who, who eats its way out of its mother's womb. And then also the viper who is fleeing. And it's as, it's as if John is saying, there's, you must notice something because you're coming here for baptism. And yet, why are you fleeing? Because you're not bearing fruit that befits repentance. As Matthew goes on to quote John the Baptist saying in verse eight, you're not bearing fruit that be, that befits repentance. And then again, drawing on this idea of proselyte um, baptism and not being able to rely on your heritage. At verse nine, we hear, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children to Abraham. God is able to raise from these stones children to Abraham. So it would have been the, the temptation of the Pharisees and the Sadducees to say, well, I'm a child of Abraham. I have, a, I have a, almost like a divine right to this blessing. And again, as a master of imagery, John the Baptist says, God can raise up from these stones children to Abraham. Bear fruit that befits repentance. In other words, if you truly repent, the fruit of your life will be evidence of that. Your heritage is not enough. God can raise up from the stones children to Abraham. Did you do anything to merit the fact that you happen to be born as a descendant of Abraham? bear fruit that befits repentance. And then again, tremendous imagery. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice here that John the Baptist does not say the ax will be laid to the root of the trees. No, he says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. When, when does somebody lay an ax to the root of the tree? You know, if you've ever cut wood with an axe or tried to cut down a tree with an axe, you know that before you take the first swing, you lay the axe down where you want to cut. And this is the image that John the Baptist draws forth of, of, of the punisher, if you will, right? The one who is going to, to, to dole out justice before he takes the first swing He's laying his ax to the root of the tree. And that is a sign that if you do not bear that fruit that befits repentance, you will be cut down and thrown into the fire. 
it's it's a judgment that is now, and it's a judgment that's not just for the nations. Because judgment was expected by the Jewish people, but it was expected that God was going to issue judgment to the nations, to the Gentiles, for having oppressed the Jewish people. But what John the Baptist seems to be implying here is that judgment here, again, if we're going to level the playing field in order to prepare the way for the Lord, um, judgment is not just going to be leveled against the Gentiles. It's going to be leveled against unfaithful Jews as well. In um, a couple places in the Old Testament, we have imagery of trees who were uh, trees who will be destroyed, and in both of these particular images, these are trees. Um, uh, the references, if you will, to to Gentiles. So, for example, at Ezekiel thirty-one, we get the image of Pharaoh and his nation of Egypt being compared to a tree. Ezekiel 31 10, therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He he shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most terrible of the nations will cut it down and leave it. On the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches will fall and its bows will lie broken in all the watercourses of the land. So intense language, yes, it's it's referring to a Gentile nation, but again, John the Baptist is taking this imagery and applying it not just to the Gentiles, but to the Jews as well. We also get this image in Daniel chapter 4, where Daniel is um, interpreting a dream that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has, in which he sees um, a, a tree with abundant fruit, abundant branches, abundant leaves, and it is uh, hewn down. It is cut down and destroyed down to the stump, okay? And Daniel interprets this dream and tells Nebuchadnezzar, this is your, this is your kingdom that, um, that God is going to, to, to destroy, to, to cut right at the root. So again, very strong language, imagery just in and of itself, but imagery that harkens back to the Old Testament and would have really insulted the Pharisees and Sadducees. But John is a true prophet and he's going to speak what needs to be spoken. And those who have ears to hear will hear it. And those who just decided um, they already they already know what they think about this, this whole John the Baptist thing, this whole baptism thing, this whole preparation thing, they are those who who do not have the ears to hear, as Jesus will kind of will kind of talk about. Um, we can we can also just take a very brief moment here to reflect on this again from a very human practical level. If you are um, if you are a keeper of an orchard, um, I I happen to know a keeper of an orchard. Um, my best friend's family has an orchard. She grew up on an orchard. Okay. Um, recently, for example, one of their oldest trees that everyone is very fond of, it's close to the house. It was one of the first trees planted. It stopped bearing fruit. And so though, um, though it's a tree that is held with affection in the family, what, what was done to the tree? It was cut down. It was cut down because it would not make sense to nostalgically leave trees in the ground that are dead and do not bear fruit. It just, it doesn't make sense. And so to make way for new fruit, to make way for a tree that can actually open itself up 
to the nutrition offered it and bear fruit, old trees, dead trees, they must be cut down. Okay, so just on a very practical level, we can understand what's going on here and what what God through John the Baptist is speaking of. How can I continue to, in a way, quote unquote, squander grace on those who, who do not wish to receive it? right? And there is a sense in which the Lord will will continually squander grace, but he doesn't force it. He's not going to force himself on his own people. And so John the Baptist as his forerunner is here to prepare the way. And those who are ready to have their hearts prepared are open to that. And those who are not are closed to that. And God as the, the, the master of the orchard is going to cultivate the trees that bear fruit, and as the, the shrewd and prudent master of the orchard, he's going to cut down those who don't bear fruit in order to make a way for more trees that will bear fruit, okay? For more trees that will bear fruit. Let's continue on here. Um, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. One who is coming who is mightier than I, his sandals I am not worthy to carry. Again, really strong language. John the Baptist is the master of of strong imagery and strong language. Um, We can pull this tidbit in from what we know of the first century. Disciples... So, so followers, students of the teacher, disciples were expected to serve their masters, but the rabbis made an exception to this expectation of service. And that exception was this, disciples would not be required to tend to their master's sandals. Fascinating. Though disciples were expected to serve the master, the rabbis made the exception that disciples would not be required to tend to the master's sandals. And this was because, you've probably heard this before, handling the feet, the sandals, was considered the most base, the most servile of tasks, okay? Now, let's think about this in a, in a couple different ways. There's a way in which we read this and we say, John is saying, I, John, am too lowly to complete this task. And there's a sense in which that's absolutely true. But there's also a sense in which we can read this, that the Lord also is so great that even the task of handling his sandals, which is considered by most base and servile, but to do that for the Lord, that would be an honor. And John the Baptist is not great enough in order to have that honor. It's a tremendous, tremendous idea, both in which we see John expressing his lowliness as well as him expressing the greatness of the Lord, okay? As if the Lord, which is true, is so great that to, to, to carry his sandals is a great honor, whereas to carry anyone else's sandals is a great dishonor. It's something that slaves do, okay? But for to do this for the Lord is a great honor. Um, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, okay? We talked earlier about how the River Jordan is um, a particularly significant site associated with Elijah, and we can bring that uh, image of Elijah in once more. So Elijah passed on his ministry to Elisha 
at the Jordan River at 2 Kings 2 verses 6 through 14. And Elisha has some fascinating parallels with our Lord. So for example, Elisha cleanses a leopard at 2 Kings 5, 1 through 19. He raises a child from the dead at 2 Kings 4, 32 through 37. And he multiplies loaves in order to feed a crowd at 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44. So this, this declaration that John the Baptist makes, that he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and that he will do greater things, baptizing you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, is totally congruent with this, this idea of Elijah passing on his ministry to Elisha or Elisha, who will do even greater things, okay? This is exactly the interplay between John the Baptist and Jesus, okay? Again, mirroring this idea of John being the new Elijah, if that's the case, then Jesus is the new Elisha or Elisha, depending on how you pronounce it, okay? He will baptize, let's come back to this and go deeper. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit and fire are associated with purification, okay? Again, I'll say that. Throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit and fire are associated with purification. So for example, at Zechariah 13, 9, we read this, I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold as tested, okay? We can look also to Isaiah 32, 15. Until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. So, so the, the pouring out of the spirit is gonna lead to fruitfulness, a, a fruitful field and a fruitful field that grows into a fruitful forest. So purification, fruitfulness, right? The pure, the pure tree is the one who can bear the most fruit. When John the Baptist foretells that Jesus will come or one who is going to come after him, who is mightier than him, and he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, he's, he's saying that Jesus's baptism is going to accomplish the transformation that John's only signifies. I'll say that again. Jesus's baptism is going to accomplish that transformation that John's baptism merely signifies. And what is that transformation? It's a, it's purification, okay? It's going to accomplish what it signifies. And this is in many ways like the definition of a sacrament. That that it's it's an action that actually accomplishes what it signifies, all right? A, a, a phenomenal fantastic idea to meditate upon. Our God is amazing to come up with the idea of sacraments, right? Water that washes me, that actually cleanses my soul. It, it accomplishes what it signifies. Praise God for baptism. We'll, we'll end our time together exploring this once more intense image. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is an intense image as well as many of these, these images are that we've been drawing on or exploring today. But it's not an unknown image. Chaff in, in the first century, a typical use for chaff was for fuel. But the, the distinction here is that whereas everyday chaff is quite quenchable, right? It burns out at some point. Um, this chaff will provide fuel for an unquenchable fire. In other words, like the, the final draw here for John the Baptist is the judgment that he is preaching is not one that is temporary, 
that is not one that is, is, is short-lasting. Rather, it's a judgment that is permanent and eternal. So we want to be um, not the chaff. We want to be the wheat separated by the Lord on the threshing floor, but gathered into the granary because the alternative is to burn for for eternity in, in perpetuity with an unquenchable fire. And I know I've said this before, and it adds an intensity even beyond what we're exploring here. But the theological thought is that uh, at the resurrection of the dead, it's not just those in heaven who will receive their body back, but even those in hell will receive their body back. And so those in hell will um, not only continue to experience eternal spiritual punishment, but they will actually begin to experience physical punishment through the resurrected body for all eternity, permanently, long lasting. This is a horrifying idea in many ways and one which should drive us to to pray for for the conversion of poor sinners. Um, I think of, for example, the intensity with which Our Lady at Fatima asked us to pray for the conversion of souls because she saw um, souls dropping into hell as as, um, water falls from the sky. Whoa, whoa, okay? But let us not fear, friends, um, because our Lord desires to save us. He desires to save us. He will not force himself, though. And so as we enter into Advent uh, more fully uh, during the this, this second week of Advent, we should enter into prayer, asking the Lord, what are those things um, that, that I withdraw from you? What are those things that, that are the chaff in my life? We can even ask him, Lord, take your, take your winnowing fork and, and place me um, on your threshing floor and separate from me that which is wheat and that which is chaff, Lord, so that I might be gathered into your barns. Ask him to do it now, now, and be open to that which he, he wants to, to show you, he, the ways in which he wants to challenge you, the ways in wants, which he wants to purify you, and the ways in which he wants to accomplish that transformation, which was signified and was initially accomplished in your baptism. But remember, Christianity is about ongoing conversion. And so this Advent season is, is a, a means for us to remind ourselves of what was accomplished in our baptism, to renew those baptismal promises, and to open ourselves further to the grace of God, which perpetually, if we allow it, transforms us. 